When people see me and I tell them I'm just a few months short of 70, they say, no way. And I say, well, I was born into a Seventh-day Adventist family, and more or less I have lived the Adventist lifestyle all of my life, and I consider that part of the reason why people think I'm still in my early 60s or, or younger. And I think of the privileges I've had as being a Seventh-day Adventist, and there are many. There was a time in my life I thought there were restrictions, and as I get older, I said, boy, I'm glad my parents didn't let me get that bad habit as I watch other people who struggle. But I do want you to know that there's also dangers in being a Seventh-day Adventist. And as I read the scripture this morning, as I was preparing this sermon, I'd like you to go there. Revelation, if you're not already there, Revelation chapter 2. And this is addressed to the church that's called the church at Ephesus. And there are a lot of similarities between the church of Ephesus and the Seventh-day Adventist church. Let's read there, starting in verse 2. I know thy works are Adventists, the people who teach that God does want us to obey. Amen? I know thy works, thy labor, thy patience, how you cannot bear them which are evil. Is it a good thing for us to know the difference between right and wrong and teach it to our children? Amen? And those who have made up their mind that they want to practice evil, we say, well, you can do that if you want to. But don't expect me to approve of what you've done. And we're living in a day and age that if you don't approve of the evil that is around you, you're considered a fanatic. Amen? And then reading on there. And you have tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and has found them liars. One of the things that we as Seventh-day Adventists do is that when we hear a message from someone, we want to check it out with the Bible, and if it doesn't square with the Bible, we reject it. Is that a good thing? Absolutely. And in the days of the early churches, before they had uh, cell phones, before they had televisions, before they had any way of mass communication, people used to go around claiming that they had been sent when they really hadn't. Paul talks a lot about them. And he, God is commending the Ephesians because when people came claiming to be apostles, claiming to have the, the prophecies of God, they would study with the Bible and they'd find out these guys aren't telling the truth and they would reject them. Is that a good thing? And then when you get down to verse chapter 6, it says, But this thou hast that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans. How many know what the deeds of the Nicolaitans are? I found out something interested. I typed in Google on my computer, Nicolaitans, and boy, they nailed it because they said there was a fellow whose name was Nicholas, and it says what he taught is still being taught among far too many Christians, and that is since we are saved by grace alone, it doesn't make any difference what we do. The deeds of the body do not affect the soul. That's what Nicholas taught, and a lot of people have accepted that, amen? And I want you to notice here, it doesn't say that, that God hates the Nicolaitans. It says he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And they give the idea to the people that it really doesn't make any difference what you do. As long as your heart is right, you're going to be all right. And the way I answer people like that, if your heart is right, the way you act is going to make a difference to you. Because the Bible says, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for what? For righteousness. One of the evidences that a person has been changed by the Holy Spirit of God 
is that they want to do God's will. And I want you to look this text up. I've shown it to you before. It's found in Psalms 40 and verse 8. In fact, while you're looking it up, I'm just going to make you sing it because we've sung it several times. I'd like to do thy will, O my God. Anybody singing with me or am I singing the solo? My wife knows it. Let's do it again. I'd like to do thy will, O my God. I'd like to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy laws within my heart. Yea, thy laws within my heart. That's why I delight to do thy will. And you see what is important is Jesus said in John 3, 3, you must be what? Born again. But you notice here in the message to the Ephesians, when you get down to verse 4 and 5, it says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Verse 5, Remember therefore from which thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. Now the reason I said that it, Being an Adventist is good, it can also be dangerous, is that we can fall into the same trap that the Ephesian church fell into, and that is they're, they're strict, and God doesn't say it's wrong to be strict. He commends them for their strictness. Amen? And they know the doctrine, and they know when people don't teach the doctrine, but it's possible to be right and be proud of your rightness and proud of your correctness And not have a love relationship with Jesus Christ. Is this what it's saying here? And the one thing that I don't want to happen to anybody who becomes a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is ever to lose that first love. Because how many of you know it's possible? Now you notice it says, unless you repent, I will come and take your candlestick. Now we think of the candlestick, but I'll tell you what it reminds me of. And it makes me almost want to weep when I say it. But as I look back over the last 40-some years that I've been a pastor, I can tell you of churches that I've pastored that are no more. They have ceased to exist. I remember one, and I definitely won't give you the name or anything else, but uh, they were very correct in their doctrine. They were very intolerant of anything that was wrong. But the people that they had contact with did not feel like that congregation loved them. And that church has ceased to exist. They had a nice, lovely building, but they've just ceased to exist. I remember a family. I had Bible studies with the children. I baptized some of the children. But the emphasis of the parents of that family was, we're going to make sure that your behavior is correct. Should Adventists have correct behavior? Yes. And God does not condemn correct behavior. But that was the only emphasis that they had. And as soon as those children were old enough to make their own decisions and get away from the rulership of their parents, they were gone. They left the church. And that's what makes a a church's light go out. Is not because they don't have the truth. It's because they don't have the truth mixed with God's love. Amen? And says, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Now, that's the bad part of the sermon. The title of the sermon is How to Rekindle Your First Love. And I want to show you that, which is what I have been showing you all along. But there's a text I have referred to, one verse in that chapter, but I haven't shown you the rest of the verses. So I would like for you to go to 2 Peter chapter 1 
And we'll look first of all at verse 4. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. And it says, whereby, which is referring to the things in verses 1, 2, and 3. It's referring to what Jesus has done. And it says, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you can become partakers of the divine nature. Now, what is the number one characteristic of God? 1 John 4, 8. What does it say? He that loveth not, knoweth not God. Why? Because God is what? So if you're going to look at the main attribute of God, what is it? It's love. And it says here in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, God has given to us what? Exceeding great and precious promises. That by these you can become partakers of what? Now I remember when I was a little boy, I would be visiting my grandmother and she still used a lot of words, older words, uh, she used this word partake when we were about to have a meal. And if grandma was having the blessing, she would say, Lord, we thank you for this food of which we're about to partake. And I knew what she meant. We're going to put the food on our fork. We're going to put it in our mouth. We're going to chew it up. We're going to swallow it. It'll get down in our stomach. And a miracle happens down there. Sometimes uh, if you eat the wrong stuff, it's a, it's a painful miracle. But it amazes me that our bodies can take almost anything we put down there and turn it into whatever we need. How, how many have noticed that? It turns some of it into energy. It turns some of it into fingernails. I know it must turn some into fingernails because mine are all the time needing Anybody else have that problem? I, mean, I think it's a miracle that, that your body can take broccoli and turn it into fingernails. <laughs> or it can take a, a peach and turn it into energy so that you can walk. How many are amazed at that? So when you partake of food, that food, whatever's in that food, it becomes you. It gives you energy. Uh, I cut myself the other day. My, it is all healed. There's just a little scar there now. How many think that's amazing? That your body can take beans and turnips and cabbage, whatever, and turn it into skin, whatever you need. Well, this is what God's promises do. You become a partaker of the divine nature. And when you become a partaker of the divine nature... What happens inside of you? You reclaim that love. And you see what I think that the Ephesians did is that they were so concentrated on, on the doctrine, which as you read here in Ephesians, it says that's a good thing, right? I am not condemning doctrine. God wants us to do that. God wants us to do what's right. But as we look at the Jews, they were careful to do what's right. But they were not careful to maintain a love relationship with Jesus Christ. So the way you do that is that you look at the exceeding great and precious promise of God. And you keep thinking about those. Now I notice at least a half a dozen people here who haven't been here before. So I've got to tell you this. When I use the phrase exceeding great and precious promises. I don't think of just good promises. I think of really good promises. Now let me share with you some of the promises that I have discovered are good. How many like the promise that says your bread and your water will be sure? Yeah, that's a good promise. How many like the promise that says that if any are sick, let him pray? If it's God's will, God will heal them. How many like that promise? I've claimed that promise for people. But I'll be honest with you. The promise that he's going to see that we have man if we have to and that he will heal us, I do not place those promises in the category of exceeding great and precious promises. 
The one promise, and I want to have an answer for you, the one promise above all other promises in the Bible that I believe is an exceeding great and precious promise is which one? Well, I'll have to tell you one more time. It's the promise that Jesus gave to the thief on the cross. How many remember what that promise was? You will be with me in paradise. And what amazes me is that we are more ready to believe the promises about health, about a job, about things in this world. We don't have too much hard time believing those, but when God says, sees something better and doesn't do it, we think, God must not love me. But there is one promise that Jesus wants to keep, the one promise that Jesus died for. And what was that one? You will be with me in paradise. And I have discovered that when I start believing that promise, I begin to become a partaker of the divine nature. And I'm going to do something I don't believe I have done here. But how many of you know that Jesus loves sinners? How many know that? Jesus loves sinners. How many know that Jesus loves sinners even when they are sinning? Now, it says he hates the deeds, the Nicolaitans, but does he love the Nicolaitans? So I want you to do a little phrase with me. Here it is. And it may make you uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable, but here it is. If I go out and sin tonight, Jesus will still love me in the morning. Is that true? That is true. Is it dangerous? Can it lead you to take advantage of God? One of the ways that you can discover whether or not you have a born-again heart is to say this, and I'm going to say it five times, and I want you to repeat it with me, and I'll tell you what it is again. If I go out and sin tonight, Jesus will still love me in the morning. Is that true? Say it with me now. Are you ready? Here we go. If I go out and sin tonight, Jesus will still love me in the morning. If I go out and sin tonight, Jesus will still love me in the morning. If I go out and sin tonight, Jesus will still love me in the morning. If I go out and sin tonight, Jesus will still love me in the morning. If I go out and sin tonight, Jesus will still love me in the morning. Now, by the time you get through that five times, want to tell me if it's happening to you. I don't want to go out and sin tonight. Because you see, when you have a born-again heart and you concentrate on how much Jesus loves you, even when you, you let him down, if you will concentrate on that, it will bring you to the place where you say, Jesus, I don't want to do that to you. Amen? And how many, when you were saying that, he will still love me in the morning, could sense, if even in a small way, that you were beginning to become a partaker of the divine nature? How many sense that? To think that he still loves me. And you see, it's true. If I go out and sin tonight, he still loves me. But I'll tell you something else that's true. John chapter 6 Verse 37 says, him that comes unto me, how many know the rest of that text? I will in no wise cast out. And when I have let God down and Satan comes and tells me what a sinner I am, I agree with him. I say, you're right. But then I look at that and Jesus says, if you come to me, if you've sinned and you come to me, I'll put my arms around you and I will still accept you. Let's go on in Second Peter. Look at that verse again whereby are given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you may become partakers of the divine nature. And then the last part of the phrase is talking about you will escape the corruption that's in the world through lust. You, you think about the promises, and too often 
All we think about is what we should do. And it's not wrong to think about what we should do. But I want you to know, if all you think about is what you should do, and you think about what your part is, but you don't think about what Jesus Christ has already done, you will get discouraged. Has anybody found that out besides me? I should do this. I should do this. Why can't I make myself do this? And you can just get discouraged. But you look at these promises, and you believe the promises, and you start quoting those promises, you'll discover that his strength starts to commend you. Now, I want to hurry here. I want you to go to Hebrews. Leave your finger there in Second Peter. But I want you to go to the book of Hebrews, and I want you to look in Hebrews chapter 3. And when you get in Hebrews chapter 3, if you look at the very last verse of Hebrews chapter 3, it says, so we see they could not enter in because of their unbelief. And when you read that chapter, you'll discover he's talking about the children of Israel on their journey from Egypt to the promised land. And we know that there were just a whole bunch of people that never got into the promised land. Do you know why they didn't get there? God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. But you see, every time they were, there would be a problem, they would begin to say, we'll never make it. We're not strong enough. And you know, you know the story. They ran out of water and they says, why'd you bring us out here? We're all going to die of thirst. God worked a miracle and gave them water. A few days later, they ran out of, of food. And they said, why did you bring us out here? We're going to die of starvation. God gave them manna to eat. They got to the very borders of the promised land. They're ready to go in. And they said, the people who live there are too big. We cannot do this. And finally, God says, we see they could not enter in. Why couldn't they enter in? Because they didn't keep rejoicing that God had said, I'm going to give you victory. Because from the time he brought them out of Egypt till they take them in, he says, I will provide your food. I'll provide your water. I will send hornets. I will drive the people out. But look again at verse 19. We see they could not enter in. Why? Because they didn't believe. Now, I want you to back up to verse number... Well, I don't have my glasses on. Six. Verse number six. Now, it's been talking about Moses and how that Moses was the ruler of the people. And it refers... Well, let's look in verse six. But Christ as a son over his own house... Now, that's not talking about a little boy who kicks his dad out. This is talking about a little boy who grows up and takes over the dad's business. The dad retires. Now, God does not retire, but Jesus, how many want to be a part of Jesus' family? All right? He, he's a son over his own house. He is, he's the head of the house. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? And then there's a comma. And what's the next word after the comma? If. Is if a big word? How many would like to be part of God's family? You can, be a, you can be part of God's family if we hold the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope clear to when? Now, when I was still in the baptistry and I was a, talking to the people that were baptized and they weren't hearing me because they were changing their clothes, one of the things I said that I like to say every Sabbath, when you accept Jesus, God accepts you how? As though How? You'd never sinned. And those of you who are baptized today, God wants you to know. You stand before God as though you had never sinned. Now listen to what it says here in Hebrews 3 verse 6. Christ is a son over his house. Whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm until the end. That is how you hang on to that first love. How do you hang on the first love? You go back and you look what Jesus did for you at the beginning and you recognize Jesus hadn't changed his mind. 
I may have let him down. I may not have kept all my baptismal vows, but God hasn't changed his mind. And when you start rejoicing over that and that he still accepts you as though you'd never sinned, you'll discover it will cause you want to come to the place where you don't sin. Does that make sense? Now, to show you how important this phrase is, the rejoicing, Paul uses it twice in the same chapter. The next time, it's in verse 14. Go down to Hebrews 3, verse 14, and notice what it says. For we are made partakers of Christ. There's that word again. How many want to be a partaker of Christ? How many know that when you're a partaker of Christ, you take on his nature, and his nature is love? Amen? Now, this is an important text. For we are made partakers of Christ, comma. What's the next word? If. If you don't do what it says after that, you're going to lose your first love. Notice what it says. If we hold what? The beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Now, in the context here, when God worked the miracle, they saw the Egyptians and what happened to them in the ten last plagues. And then he led them out and they saw the miracle of the water opening. And they went through and they were excited. God can do what God said he's going to do. How many believe that? How many believe that God can save you? How many believe that God can deliver you? How many believe that God can give you victory over sin? How many believe that God can see you through the time of trouble? Rejoice in that. Read verse 14 again. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence. How long? Is Satan going to try to steal it away? Book Steps to Christ says Satan is constantly seeking to steal away the blessed assurances of Jesus. Amen? And so you see the people who didn't make it into the promised land... The people who lost their first love, rather than rejoicing over what God promised he would do, rather than rejoicing what God had already done, and rejoicing he's going to keep doing what he says he was going to do, rather than rejoicing about that, they looked at how weak they were, how many mistakes they made, they looked at how strong the enemy was. How many of you ever talked about how strong the devil is? I don't even know if I want you to raise your hand, but we do that, don't we? Oh, the devil does this, and the devil does this, and the devil made me this. All that is true, he does that. But don't talk about the devil. Don't talk about how weak you are. Don't talk about how strong the devil is. You just, in your mind, you keep thinking, this is what God has done. This is what God has said. This is what God is going to do. I believe his promises. He started me this far. And he, the people who kept believing went into the promised land. And the people who quit believing and quit rejoicing didn't go. And one of the first sermons I preached nearly a year ago when I came here We have sung that. I won't sing this again, but it's found in Luke chapter 10. How many remember Luke chapter 10? Does anybody remember Luke chapter 10? Verse 19 and 20. Come on. Anybody know Luke chapter 10, verse 19 and 20? Oh, good. I get to give it to you again. Here it is. Luke chapter 10, 19 and 20. Uh, The context of this particular text. And by the way, Robbie's here, and I didn't even preach this text when I was in Bethel. All right? So you may not have heard this unless you was here when I preached it. But what you have here is Jesus had sent the disciples out to witness. They're a little bit afraid like you and I are. But he says, you go out in my name. And when they came back, verse 17 and 19, they were all excited. And they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Without Jesus, they'll beat you. In Jesus' name, they cannot beat you. Amen? And then Jesus said in verse 19 and 20... Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Should we believe that? Should we rejoice in that? Be careful with that. Be careful with that. Look at what else it says. 
In verse 20, notwithstanding this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you. How many of you know that when you get victory over particular sin, then Satan sneaks around and and starts patting you on the back and say, boy, that's really great. You are really a good person. Did that happen to the Ephesians? Look at what we have done. So Jesus says, I'm going to give you power and I'm going to give you victory over Satan. But in verse 20, it says, notwithstanding this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you. Now, this is strange. Don't rejoice over your victories because that can make you proud. How many can see that? How many are looking at, at Luke 10, 20 right now? All right, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitating here because I want you to get the full impact of this thing. But he says, rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. When was the last time that you rejoiced that your name was written in heaven and Satan says, are you sure? Look at what you've done. How can your name be there? Does Satan do that to anybody besides me? I've got news for you. It's the rejoicing that your name is written in the book that blocks Satan's temptations. Because when Satan tempts you, you start rejoicing. My name is written in God's book. I remember the sermon on this, on this subject that I preached. Only one or two. How many are willing to stay here till 1230 and hear the rest of it? I'm not going to do that because I'm hungry. All I had for breakfast was an apple. <laughs> but there are about eight places in the Bible where it uses this phrase, whose name is written in the book. The first time you found it is in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. It's talking about a time of trouble. And it says, they will be delivered whose names are written in the book. And so Jesus said to the disciples, rejoice that, don't rejoice you get victory. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Amen? Do that. And I want you to notice something. This is in Luke 10. It's not down near the end of Luke. It's in Luke 10. It's early in the, in fact, it wasn't just the disciples. Remember, early in his ministry, Jesus sent out quite a few people, 70. And it was to the 70 said this. What were the disciples like early in Jesus' ministry? What were they like? They were very human, weren't they? They bickered with each other. Who's going to be the highest in the kingdom? I remember that. Peter didn't realize he had a problem with profanity. And three years later, he was cursing and swearing, denying they knew the Lord. He was cursing and swearing he was lying. I don't know him. But Jesus said to them early on in their ministry, when they were still struggling with sin, rejoice that your name is written in the book. You don't have to overcome your sins in order to have your name written in the book. You have to accept Jesus and then rejoice that your name is written in the book, and that will give you the victory over sin. How many of I've been preaching this ever since I've been here? All right. Now there's another text. Luke 10. We've already said that. There's another one. We have sung this one. And this is found in Philippians 4.4. 4. Well, actually verse 3 and 4. How many remember what song goes with Philippians 4.4? 4? Anybody remember it? Rejoice in the Lord always. Oh, we've sung this here, haven't we? Yes. And often we've sung rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice, and we sing that song. I think that's a wonderful song, but we leave out the last phrase of verse 3 because that tells us what to rejoice about. We talk about rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Rejoice about what? You look at the last phrase in verse 3, and it says rejoice that your names are in the book. And so I sing it now, rejoice in the Lord always. My name is in his book. Now, when you go on into the book of Revelation, I don't think I remember all these, 
13, verse 8, I believe, is one. It talks about the mark of the beast, and it says the whole world received the mark of the beast except those whose names were written in the book. And then you get about chapter, oh, 20, verse 15, and it talks about they're all in the lake of fire whose names were not written in the book. And then you get to about verse 21, the last verse of, verse of chapter 21, and it talks about walking the streets of gold whose names are in the book. If you want to regain your first love, recognize that you've lost it, recognize that you're weak, recognize that you're a sinner, but you start rejoicing that your name has been written in the book by Jesus' own blood. And when you start rejoicing over that, as you just discovered when we went through that phrase, if I go out and sin tonight, Jesus still love me in the morning, you start rejoicing, you keep rejoicing long enough, and you'll discover that you can sense the divine nature coming into your heart. Am I right? You put stuff in your mouth and you can taste it and you know it's coming part of your body. You put God's word in your mind. You keep thinking about God's word. And how many know that Satan wants to do anything he can to get your mind off of God's word? He does that every day. He even does not church. He'll get church members upset at each other. He doesn't care what it takes as long as you're not rejoicing that Jesus has done what he's done for you. When you accept Jesus as your Savior then no matter how sinful your past life may be, and for Christ's sake, you are accounted righteous because Jesus' character now stands in place of your character and you're accepted before God as though you'd never sinned in your life. The theme of this sermon is to help you know how to reclaim your first love because it says you may be right and the things that you're doing are approved by God, but you need to take hold of your first love Oh, he's letting me know that it's time for dinner. It looks like... The what? <laughs> All right. Bob has just not done you a favor. He brought me food so I can keep on preaching. Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm thinking of the kids here. And uh, by the way, If you want to hear all these sermons again, I believe the gentlemen up in the booth have them all recorded. Am I correct on that? And if you can't find them there, get on Google and type in Joshua, like Joshua beat the Battle of Jericho. Joshua, then type SDA, and it will bring you up a website of the last church I pastored. And it has, you find in there all the sermons I have preached. There's only a couple that I've come up new here, but I don't remember which ones they are. Let me show you one more text that uh, is an encouragement. It's in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. And it's talking about how to reclaim your first love. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. How many of you are there yet? Being, what's the second word there? Being what? What's confident? What's confident? Yeah, this is going to work. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. If you're working for God, but your heart's not in it, don't stop working for God, but start filling your mind with his promises. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. My name is in his book. Rejoice that he has written your name in his book. Let's bow our heads. 
Dear Jesus in heaven, there is a way that we can overcome temptation. And it doesn't depend on how strong our will is. It just depends on how we use what little will we have. And the way that we're supposed to use our will is when Satan starts putting his thoughts in our mind, whether it be discouragement or lust or whatever it is, help us to replace the thoughts of Satan with the thoughts of God and help us to do what Jesus told the weak and struggling disciples to do. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Help us to know as we do that, we can become partakers of the divine nature. And when we become partakers of the divine nature, we will escape the corruption that's in the world through lust. Help us, Jesus, to know that by having your words in our minds, we can actually create around us the atmosphere of heaven. This is my prayer for each one. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's bow our heads for the benediction. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you that you can be everywhere at once. You can be in our hearts and help us to carry with us the atmosphere of heaven everywhere we go because I have read an inspired word that says there is an atmosphere of grace that circulates around this globe that's just as real as the air which we breathe. And if we choose to daily give our minds to Jesus, we can actually sense the atmosphere of heaven around us wherever we are. This is my prayer for these dear people who have joined your church today and for everyone who is here today, that they might know the presence of Jesus Christ in their life. And just like the song that we sang for our opening song, he walks with me, he talks with me, he tells me I'm his own. And we can actually, Father, sense your arms around us, holding us close to yourself. Help us, Father, not to allow Satan to put things in our minds that shut off our hearts from you. This is my prayer now in Jesus' name. Amen.